Hello and welcome to Setting the Scheme. I'm Ben. I'm Doug. I'm Tristan. I'm Elijah. Wow, guys, we're all here. Also, Ben, Ben, yeah. your your mic sounds crystal clear. Crisp. That's because I was just like right here. Uh, yeah, the people listening can't see me, but I'm like right up on my mic. Yeah, like, you close enough probably... that I can really do some ASMR stuff. Like if I just stay right here. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I'll take it. Until I also, back up, Macy told me to stop being weird. Yeah, no, no, no. We, we we all heard we all heard Macy on the back end uh, saying <laughs> that you were doing things that were weird. Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. It's been a minute. Uh, I would just like to say that um, growing up, my um, I would sometimes sing with the choir and stuff in church, and I was always told to eat the mic. So mm, I was too. Yep. I was too. Uh, anyway, yes, Doug, it's good to have you back. You haven't been yes. here. Uh, Elijah, you weren't here last week, but we're right. all here. Ben and I held down the fort with Ferngully. Yeah, y'all missed out. Were uh, we, we talked so about how and... Ferngully was actually a metaphor for the making of Ferngully. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's, that's true. So meta. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but you know what I want to know about? whether or not you talked about this with Ferngully, I want to know if you talked about what the heck is happening with Lake Mead. Yeah, it's an, no, important, we didn't. It's an important discussion. It's very, actually, NPR this morning. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this morning, NPR uh, had a little segment about Lake Mead and uh, the Hoover Dam as well, and because it's really dry over there. So... Um, it's, it's, the, the it's the nation's largest it's the nation's largest reservoir so it's important to talk about okay friends friends in case in case you picked uh episode 96 of this podcast to be your first which good for you welcome we are so happy that you're here uh Doug, um, episode 96 next week if you chose episode 95 to be the first episode <laughs> that you listen to of this podcast First of all, thank you so much for being here. We are happy that you're here. Pull, sit down, pull up a chair, pull yourself a pour yourself a nice drink. Pull yourself um, together. Uh, and but, ask yourself what exactly is happening at Lake Mead. What are you? Ask yourself what the heck are you doing here? Honestly, like what the heck are you doing here when you could be something when you could be doing something about Lake Mead? Yeah. Um, this is a uh, this is a movie podcast for those of you who this is your first time listening. This is a movie podcast, but also we care deeply about Lake Mead, located in Utah or Nevada or wherever the heck Lake Mead is. Hey, Doug, I have a very important question for you. Yep. What did we watch this week? Oh, yeah, that's right. We are a movie podcast, first and foremost. <laughs> it was uh, a Lake Mead documentary, actually. <laughs> Yeah, that, really oh man, that a very different be, movie. That should be episode one hundred of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, so uh, so so this week we watched two thousand eleven. I'll say smash hit. Um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, directed by I literally just saw his name. Directed by Rupert Wyatt, and starring Andy Serkis, James Franco, Frida Pinto, Tom Felton. Who is also Draco Malfoy, um, Terry Notary, John Lithgow, and Brian Cox, and John uh, Lithgow, who also plays Barney Stinson's dad in How I Met Your Mother. See, I always go to John Lithgow, who also played Lord Farquaad, who in turn is responsible for one of my favorite lines. Even though several of you may die, that's a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> but in this movie, my, 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 how the turntables, because he, in fact, did die. And that was a risk he was not willing to take. Actually, it was a risk he was willing to take. Also, I'm just going to take a time out right here and say that I uh, have been at summer camps for the past two weeks, two and a half weeks. And so my voice is shot. Um, and I apologize for that. Uh, but you to apologize for, Doug. Thank you so much. Uh, but uh, Roger, what yeah. were you trying to say? I was trying to say we also have Andy Serkis, who played Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And we have James Franco, who played uh, Harry Osborn in our, uh, some of our favorite Spider-Man movies. We mm-hmm. didn't mention those other connections. Andy Serkis, they love to, to hook him up to, <laughs> to some motion capture. 
and make a CG character around him. Yeah, they do. Well, I mean, let's be real. Andy Circus is the reason that we have mocap. I mean, he's not the Absolutely. sole reason, but he's the reason that everybody uses mocap. Yeah. Um, Andy Circus, for those of you who didn't know, is uh, the incredible actor who brought us Gollum slash Schmeagel to the to the screen and he brings Caesar and taught all of the other actors um, who portrayed the apes in these films uh, to life. Um, He is an incredible actor. And that is where I want to bring up my first grievance with this movie and not just this movie, but the entire trilogy of movies. And that is that Andy Serkis has never received an Oscar for his work on these films. And it is incredible. Uh, I don't know if it's Oscar worthy, but okay. You can I think shut it's Oscar worthy for, if nothing else, how groundbreaking it is in the sense also, of like technological achievement. Also, I'm just going to say <laughs> they look like apes, like, <laughs> and the effects hold up. That's great. The effects are really good, but they hold up a whole heck of a lot better than those stupid blue people in Avatar. (laughs) That's true. I I agree on that. I couldn't Uh, tell you the last time I actually I I remember nothing from Avatar. Still don't get why Avatar is a big deal, but whatever. Um, Because of of the groundbreaking technology. I know, but Um, that's why it was a big deal. Good movie. Okay. No one said it was a good movie. Everyone says it's a good movie. (laughs) But clearly not. Everyone's been. Lots of people. Uh, yeah, I know. Like, well you know, known. Lord of the Rings won a lot of awards for Gollum and for the CG work that was done. But I don't think, I think you're right. I don't think Andy Serkis himself. He's wanted- never won an Oscar. Yeah. He's never won an Oscar for his work. And that is criminal. He is a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, also some other facts about this movie that I didn't include. The movie was made on a budget of $93 million. It grossed $481 million. So I was absolutely right when I said it's a smash hit. Um, uh, ratings wise, this movie has a 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 82% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 4.2 out of 5 on Apple and an 85% on the Google uh, ben, oh, do you and, have? Um, yes, there I it do. Is. It um, got four stars out of five on Common Sense Media. Yep, there it is. Also, um, I'm trying to see who won the Oscar that year for um, technological achievements so. or for visual effects. Uh, okay, well, this was nominated for oh, best achievement in visual effects. Yep. Sorry. Uh, so give me a second. I'm also just going to say that this is the first of two episodes that we're going to be doing about um, the what has been called the Planet of the Apes reboot series. Uh, it's this movie, uh, 2014's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and 2017's War for the Planet of the Apes, which I'll go on. I'll say I don't think that any singular movie in this trilogy is a masterwork of filmmaking or like is the perfect movie, but I will go on record as saying that I think that these movies together as one trilogy make a perfect trilogy. One of the greatest trilogies in all of film history. Um, and okay, so I've I, got the winner of the best achievement in visual effects for 2012. It was Martin Scorsese's uh, Hugo. Oh yeah, that was that I, was all uh, motion captured. Yeah, well, it was it wasn't motion captured. The whole movie was uh, done on green screen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't agree with that, um, but that's well, neither... you're also not the Academy, Doug. So, <laughs> ah, yes, and the okay. Academy and the Academy of Motion Pictures is has always been uh, known for uh, you know really just just choosing the right choice every single time. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Yep. Never, never made a bad choice and picking a family. You know, you know. Just remember, just remember that when in doubt, keep my wife's name out your effing mouth <laughs> um that's good that's a good motivational I, saying to have up 
see it every morning, get ready to go to work. Um, how it's important to note, Andy Serkis was nominated several times for his work in Rise in all of the movies. Yeah, for different for different awards. Yeah, that's all no, fine and good, Oscars, but that's all fine and good. But you want to know something? Never won an Oscar for him. I I and I I don't know why you think he should win an Oscar. I don't it. think he should. I know he should have gotten an Oscar for one of these movies. Like compared to, like, I don't know. Compared to freaking Hugo, yeah, he should have won an Oscar. <laughs> So I'm looking at uh, who got the Oscar for Best Achievement in Visual Effects for the sequel. I, I, I think it's fair that uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes didn't win that one. It lost to Interstellar. Yeah. Okay, fine. Screw Interstellar. I don't like that movie anyway. Okay, Best Actor in 2011 was Colin Firth in The King's Speech. Okay. Andy Serkis is a better actor than Colin Firth in The King's Speech. I, I don't know. I don't Andy Serkis and Andy Serkis. Have you Serkis seen The King's mo- Speech? Because have it's you damn seen good. this movie? Have you seen this? Yeah, movie? I watched it. Doug. It's far better. He is so right, much Doug. better in my, this movie. Look, my leg. Than Colin Firth hard, is okay? in The King's Speech, dude. My, my leg dude, is in pain, Doug. You can't, dude, you got to stop pulling it. Andy Serkis in all of these movies is just. At the top of his freaking game, and you're gonna tell me that Colin freaking Firth deserved an did deserved an Oscar over this? Yeah, I I, I agree with it. The Academy sure thought so. Keep my <laughs> wife's name out your mouth, Andy Circus. And you know, go ahead, Eliza. Andy Circus played a non-human character really well in a way that really made you sympathize with the character struggle this man played an ape and you feel so much sympathy so much empathy for him and he doesn't have a freaking oscar as uh, so i just want to close the loop on this uh looked up because uh, uh spoilers war yeah. for the planet of the apes was oh, also nominated for that same spoilers, oscar everyone. Uh, and also lost it lost to Blade Runner 2049, which I've not seen. Uh, well, you know who won Best Actor the next year is the lead in The Artist, the movie that Doug also didn't like. I never saw it. Oh, really? Yeah, I wasn't on that episode. Someone didn't like it. Yeah, uh, it was Macy. Oh. Yeah, but I was I was going to say Andy Serkis in this movie you never see Andy Serkis's face yeah, and you barely hear his voice, but it is all his acting. Mm-hmm. Like this is a pretty remarkable accomplishment. Don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it is remarkable. I don't know if it's better than some of the other performances. It is, but Neither he does the Academy, but he communicates so much more in the little that you see than some people do in an entire film yeah like a normal role i just i just want to say that honestly it's kind of interesting the fact that the fact that this movie went up against um the andy circus went up against colin firth in the king's speech because that literally is a movie about a man trying to speak in a way that is authoritative and is um and is impactful for the country uh which he represents this is a movie where the character says exactly four words and he brings every he makes you feel every little bit of emotion and depth that this character is bringing to the performance definitely i I, I feel a similar way about um, James Franco in this movie. I think he did an excellent job. I think yeah, James Franco plays James Franco. Yeah. I mean, I, I really liked his interactions with his dad. And, and as someone who like has experienced Alzheimer's, they, they did good. They did a good job in this movie with that. And yeah. Um, I mean, the the look on his face when he sees his, his dad, like, 
I know, like, I see that, and then I see James Franco, and I'm like, I know what he's feeling, and the the way it reads on his face is, like, what I've felt before, you know? Like, it's, like, you just stare at someone, and then you you just don't know what to do or say or how to even act. Like, that was that was really well done. Yeah, and shout out to John Lithgow for his performance as well. Yeah, playing the John Lithgow is incredible. Who uh, suffers from Alzheimer's? That was good. I don't think I've seen anything bad that John Lithgow's been in. Mm, Daddy's home too. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think I've seen anything bad that John Lithgow's been in. Uh, Daddy's home too. I haven't seen it, Doug. Well, so Doug, what is the what is the greatest single word line in all of cinematic history? So uh, this is this is actually so this movie is a reboot of sorts for the Planet of the Apes trilogy. And I think it's important to say that in 2011, nobody was asking for a Planet of the Apes reboot. Like Tim Burton tried in 2001 to do a reimagining of Planet of the Apes um, with Mark Wahlberg in the lead role. Um, but nobody was really looking for it. And here you have this movie in which it has basic, this whole trilogy has the smallest of comparisons to the original 1960s trilogy. Um, But in the original trilogy, there is a, uh, there's a bit of exposition that is given as to when the planet of the apes as, or as to when apes began to take over the planet earth. Um, and they say, you know, in the beginning, it was just one ape who, when he was tired of being oppressed, when he was tired of, um, being pushed around like an animal, like a pet, he stood up against his oppressors and said one word, one singular word, no, the word that has been used, the word that had been used against him his whole life, he said no. And I think that this movie, in spite of the fact that it pulls almost nothing else from the original uh, film series, when Caesar grabs the hand of Draco Malfoy (laughs) and looks him in his smug little eyes and utters, No! More than an utterance. It's a roar. Like, it... It gives me chills every time I see it. Yeah. It was definitely a super powerful moment. My cousin, who we actually watched this whole trilogy together in theaters, like we went, this is, this is one of the few movie trilogies that the two of us have gone to see every single, we went and saw every single movie when they came out in theaters. Um, And the scene where Caesar says no is like it's the moment for this movie because it's the moment when caesar just says enough is enough yeah and i love it so 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 much is it better than darth vader's no (laughs) yeah Uh, you know it's it's occurring to me too we talked about how people like uh People like Andy Serkis and some motion capture uh, to play a character. But I'm thinking, you know, his voice talents probably make a big difference for how marketable he is for stuff like this. I'm thinking about this character compared to Gollum. Yeah. Um, Gollum was, you know, he had an extremely unique voice (laughs) and he's like snivelly and creepy and pathetic. Yeah. Uh, Elijah, can you give us a rendition of that? (laughs) He's, he sounds a lot like, so don't have any friends. Nobody loves the lure. That's him. But in this movie, he plays Caesar, and his uh, even the line at the end that he whispers, he, he speaks with a lot of power, you know? Like his voice kind of just resonates. Yeah. And he comes across as this really powerful character. But it's the same guy. So he's he's talented in his in the area of voice work too. Where's this man's Oscar? <laughs> I'm yeah. saying. 
Also, um, Doug, the look you had on your face when Elijah did his um, Gollum impression was uh, concerning. <laughs> I I have been been working on my Gollum impression for it's a uh, beautiful impression. Oh yeah, for a decade and a half. Um, One time, I, I also. Go ahead. Oh, just great story. I stole my mom's phone one time and I went in there and changed her uh, like uh, the, the ringtone for me when I call. Mm-hmm. And I recorded myself doing one of Gollum's monologues with all the heavy breathing. And I saved it as my ringtone for her. <laughs> and, uh, and then like days later, I called her while she was in the grocery store. So she said she was just walking in the grocery store and then suddenly this Gollum Smeagol monologue starts coming out of her purse. <laughs> yes. She said people were looking at her weird. She was mad at me when she answered the phone. The prestige. It was a great moment. <laughs> um, also, I just want to say, because the actual line in the movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which is the original movie where they talk about um, what Caesar says, uh, I just want to read it because it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Um he did not grunt he articulated he spoke a word a word which had been spoken to him time and again without without number by humans he said no and that's how it all started and i think that's beautiful i think this movie just so clear because here's the thing Planet of the Apes, 1968. I think that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah, 1968 is about a man, Charlton Heston, who discovers the world as he knows it is no more. And also, spoilers for a 1968 film. He does not realize that he has crash landed back on Earth, only to find that hundreds of years have passed and the world is now run by apes. It is about a man trying to adapt to being the lowest on the totem pole, the animal in the room. And the 2001 reimagining, as it was dubbed, is the exact same story, by and large, just done far worse. But here, you have a movie that looks at that looks at everything from the apes perspective. The apes are not trying, do not start in this movie as a group who are trying to, to take over. They are not a group who has a malicious intent uh, towards the humans outside of anything that would regularly be associated with, by a creature in captivity towards their captors. But the minute humans start messing with them and start giving them an inch, a mile, in terms of the AL1Z, the AL, the, the serum, um, the ALZ112, that's what it is, um, to grow their intelligence, to make them able to think, that's when they start realizing that what they have, what they are being granted, is not enough that they deserve more um if they are able to think like humans and in mo in the grand scheme of things if they're able to outthink humans then they should not be subservient to them and what this movie does so so well is it says that if you take someone if you take someone who is so who is so clearly superior to you and you try to put them in a box, eventually they're going to realize that that box is not enough. It was never enough. All they had to do was realize that they were bigger than the box. And this movie with that one word, no, just so expertly takes this entire idea of Planet of the Apes and makes it so much bigger, so much more important than any 1960s sci-fi schlock could be. That's not to say that I don't love the 60s movies. I actually deeply love them, but... Do you feel like you connect with that? My point still stands. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, I think that 
I think that I've never been at a place where I've had to deal with that. I mean, aside from like moving away from like my hometown, like realizing that, you know, you can do bigger and better things. I just think that societally speaking, objectively, I'm able to notice that that is such a more, that's a much more important story than what was being presented in the original source material. And I think that this movie, this trilogy, each movie just builds on that idea of, on that idea of what happens when you try to recontain something that was never meant to be contained? I love it. I love it so, 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 so much. And well it, does, it does what uh, what sci-fi does probably better than any other genre is ask a pretty realistic what-if question that we could potentially face in the real world and go ahead and follow it to its kind of logical conclusions and wrap it up in a way that makes you take a hard look at the way we as humans do things and maybe yeah. how we could be doing them better. I think sci-fi probably does that. That's, that's kind of like what sci-fi gets used for more often than not. Don't you think? Yeah. Frankenstein and stuff like that. Star yeah. Trek. I think that's what, I think that's what good sci-fi does is yeah. good sci-fi. And in my opinion, good horror as well but that's a discussion for another day with another <laughs> another film that we'll be looking at uh setting the scare um or setting, setting the, the scream <laughs> sorry sorry um i like we'll that looking, though <laughs> we'll be looking at setting the scream um but yeah i think i think that sci-fi just as a whole i mean these movies are just so they take a film franchise that nobody wanted to reboot nobody cared about like yeah they were good they were popular but i mean it's it's over like, i mean also there are other movies series. yeah yeah but the book series isn't like it's not doing anything now not really like i mean it was popular back in the day it's not that popular now but it takes the series that everyone has by and large forgotten about and it says what if we just take another look at it what if we take a look at it from the age perspective and it gives us such an incredibly thought-provoking analysis of humanity of oppression of societal struggles and i think it's beautiful for that reason i think that's why this film and the trilogy as a whole means so much to me because it it so cleverly breaks down every single flaw and every single uh shortcoming of man and of humanity and it presents it in a way that's just like here you go take a look take a look take a look I love it. It's I in a book. It. I I Reading love Rainbow. this trilogy. I yeah I could tell Doug I could tell you hey. really do I'm feeling it too. I'm really looking forward to the other yeah, two. Me too. A uh, couple things real quick. Tristan, uh, our friend Seth, we talked on the podcast about how he pestered us about Jojo Rabbit. Like, you've got to see Jojo Rabbit. We finally did. And now we love that movie. Uh, he has talked up this trilogy the same way. And he told me each, in his opinion, each movie is better than the one before it. So I'm really looking forward to finishing this trilogy. Doug, I think, talked it up. Abby really likes it. My sister. Yeah, I think, ahead. I think that Dawn, the second movie, I think that's the best movie in the trilogy. But then again, I have not seen War in a very long time. I need to rewatch War. I saw it like, I saw it when it came out, and then I saw it again like two or three years ago. I actually have a poster for War for War: The Planet of the Apes hanging in my bedroom. Nice. Um, so speaking of war, this is completely off topic, but I want sure. to mention this. And we've gotten to a point where this is too serious and we just need to laugh at something. This movie reaffirmed something for me. That humans should never try to go to war with to any kind about. of animal. Because if you're not aware, at one point, the country of Australia tried to do such a thing. And that is how we ended up with the Great Emu War, which the Australians lost. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, I'll, I'll leave you all to go do your own research about that, but it's an interesting story. Yeah, I, I think your general rule of thumb that humans should never declare war on animals, that's probably a good rule. Yeah. Um, I'm it it ask, just won't go well. I was going to ask, Ben, because uh, you were the only one who said you had not seen yes. any other Planet of the Apes movie. Yeah, we kind of skipped over that. Yeah, bef- before this, I had seen the original from 1968 because uh, it was a big deal in a film class that I took at UGA, I think. And... Um, so I watched it, uh, and well, well, first, Ben, are you aware? Like, were you aware of the plot twist at the end of the movie? Uh, I mean, what specifically are you referring to? It's are you are you talking about the plot twist at the end of the original movie? Yeah. Oh, about uh, it actually being Earth. Yes, I was. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so like the scene where they see the uh, remains of the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. and Charlton Heston's character realizes he's actually on Earth. Yes, um, uh, the, stuff like that is actually the reason that I thought that's what I was going to get. I didn't realize when we started this movie that it was like an origin story, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So I really think the original's worth watching just for that really iconic twist ending, if nothing mm-hmm. else. I. I also will just agree with a lot. Like the original movie is also really good. Like yeah. it is genuinely good. And I think, I think the original series, cause it's originally five movies. They're really interesting to watch because they do the first movie. First movies, huge success. But then they say, okay, can you do it again? But with half the budget, they literally cut the movie's budget in half and they do the second movie. Then they cut the second movie's budget in half. I'm not joking. And they do the third movie. And they keep cutting it in half until you get to the fifth movie. And they literally just like film stuff in a parking lot at one point. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it is, it's impressive just how cheaply the last few movies of that series are made. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned my sister who's a guest on the podcast a lot is fans of these movies too. I was talking about it with her. I read the trivia for the original movie uh, didn't even know it was based on a book before then. Yeah. Um, but I learned that the book did not have that twist ending. Mm-mm. So as far as you know, reading the book, apparently it's just some alien planet where apes reign supreme. But in the movie, they added this twist ending where this is actually planet Earth and this is what's become of it. Um, and to me, I'm like, man, the twist ending is kind of what makes it, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like without that, it's just kind of an exciting and thrilling kind of nonsensical story a little bit. Yeah. But when they yeah. add that ending to it, suddenly the story gets a whole lot of depth. You know, all of a sudden it feels like it really means something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's I haven't read the book, but I, I can only imagine I would not enjoy it as much as the movie just because it wouldn't have that ending that makes it feel like the story is actually saying something. Uh, and with that in the back of my mind, I ran into this expecting to enjoy it. And I really did, uh, partially because Doug and all our other friends sold us, <laughs> sold us on it without overselling mm. it. Well done, Doug. Um, Thank you. I'm Thank really you. looking forward to the other two. But yeah, this Same. I think this is a really good example of what sci-fi is capable of as a genre. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to go on and tell y'all because I stand by this. I love the first movie. Second movie, though good lord it is insane it's great but it is insane i can't I don't wait. remember it oh oh i remember say i remember watching it in the theater i um, remember like it being really dark like it's insanely dark like, li- like the lighting it was just dark oh uh, that's all i remember well that too um also i feel i should tell our friends this because i don't know if y'all know this um, do you know who the director of the next two movies is? I do. Thanks for looking up. It's our boy Matt Reeves who directed Ooh. The Batman. I'm here for that. And if I'm right, I think he wrote War for the Planet of the Apes. Right on. Um, I'm a yeah, I'm a big fan of the Batman. That was a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's one of a few reasons I'm excited to finish this trilogy. Oh, well, he is one of the credited writers on uh, War for Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Tell With, me, uh, Doug. Mark Bomback. Mm-hmm. Do we get 
the uh, Helena Bonham Carter ape in the third film. Is she in it? No, and thank God we That's don't. That's too bad. I don't <laughs> think I'll be watching it then. Sorry. Is Marky Mark in it? Nope. Shame. What do you have? I don't care about him. I've only seen the 2001 Planet of the Apes once, and that's it. I've only seen it once. I've only seen it once too. And okay, so so that does bring that does bring up one thing that I do want to talk about is just you know this movie. It's so incredible because you know, like I've like I've said multiple times, no one really was clamoring for this movie, but as soon as it was made, they greenlit the sequel like lightning fast and they greenlit it so fast that the the writers rick jaffa and i need to look up the other writer uh, because i want to give them credit um hold on just just a second uh rick jaffa and dang it i thought i had it pulled up I'm I'm sure Rick Jaff is listening right now. I know I know Rick is. Rick, we know fan. you're listening. We okay. know you're an avid listener. Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, the writers of the of this movie, like they they were approached to to do a sequel, and their response was, "We never planned for a sequel. We never planned on doing anything else." I think this movie could absolutely work as a standalone. Oh. Well, I mean, you watch it, and it's like, yeah, this is this is meant to just be like a standalone like movie. And I watched this movie with the goggles of someone who didn't know that we were going to get a second movie. And I think, yeah, this does work as a beautiful little sort of prequel reboot of Planet of the Apes. Sweet, solid. And then 21st Century Fox goes, do another one. And they make Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And it far surpasses this movie for me. For me, I don't know if y'all, I don't know about y'all, but I think this, I think the second movie is going to surpass it for you. You know, we shall see. I felt like the ending of this movie was begging for a sequel. I like the resolution at the end, but after the the climactic scene on the on the bridge, you can't help but feel like there's a whole city full of people right next to these apes who feel like they've been wronged and they want justice, you know, it, yeah. to me, the ending of this movie still has a lot of unresolved tension. I felt like it was begging for a sequel. I get that. Um, I, I think it works as a standalone though, in that it, like it's easy to kind of guess what's going to happen between this and what would theoretically be what is originally considered like the planet of the apes movies. With yeah. Charlton Heston coming back to Earth after so many years, yeah, um, yeah, it's I, like it's a story that can be continued, but I guess but it doesn't it can be, but like it doesn't have to be, right? Um, yeah, I'm I'm very excited for y'all to see the next ones, the next two, because I I love them. Um, also, I think it's just really funny that. Not just this movie, quite literally every single one of these movies. The only reason there is a movie is because humans try to stir something up with the apes. Sounds about right. Like, literally, the humans are a catalyst for their own destruction. And what did I say earlier about declaring war on animals? Don't mess with emus. Do not mess with the emus. Yeah, and also that sentence you just said, the humans are a catalyst for their own destruction. That can be applied to a lot of science fiction. That can be that's, applied to current reality. Uh, I was about to say, say and history. Let, that's need right. Us, need us remind you of Lake Mead. Freaking yeah. Lake Mead. What are we even doing about it? I mean, it comes what back. What are you doing it, about what, what goes around comes around. You understand? Uh, it's all about Lake Mead at the end. Well, I mean, uh, Lake Mead was there at the beginning, and Lake Mead will be there at the end. Well, I mean, Lake you know, Mead it's will literally all of us. It's literally the Probably fact not. that humans. It's literally the fact that humans are the embodiment of the snake eating its own tail. Mm. Like we just, we just keep going around in this little self-destructive cycle that we're in. Mm. Um, welcome to probably the most depressing episode of this entire podcast. Um, maybe, maybe we'll see you next week. <laughs>
Well, when, times. Spoiler uh, alert, guys. It does not get back for the humans. Oh, I mean, we know. <laughs> we we know about the the 1968 original. We know what the humans were doing in that movie. So. Yeah. I will say. They weren't living. I'll, I will say, I'll go on and say, there's a weird tie-in that they try in War for the Planet of the Apes. It really doesn't like do that much, and you only notice it if you know the original Planet of the Apes movie. Um, but like, it's just a weird like, like they do, it and you're like that chronologically doesn't make sense. But okay. Also, real quick, I can't believe we didn't have this on our uh, list of things we wanted to talk about. There's a scene in this movie that shows some a team of astronauts about to head to Mars. Mm-hmm. Is that supposed to be the team from the original film with Charlton Heston's character? I think it can be. It doesn't have to be. Like, that's what I'm talking about. This movie, they wrote it as a one-off. Yeah. They, they, they wrote it as a one-off as like, this is just how things happened. This is just yeah. how things got started. So like, it's in it's in there as like this is this is sort of like what we're hinting at like yeah like this like sort of the novelty of the Charles and Heston movies is that they fly off in the 1960s and land a thousand years later and that's what society is like and they think well clearly hundreds of years past which I mean in the 60s movies they go on to say like hundreds of years passed after y'all flew off and you all kind of just destroyed yourself via war we were just the only things that left that were still around um but this movie kind of says no like as soon as you left things pretty much devolved into utter chaos so it's like it's like is that supposed to be charlton heston yes is it eh. i mean does it matter not really yeah you're right um i just thought i would uh bring it up i thought that was interesting um and before anybody suggests we uh score this movie i want to bring up two other just little tidbits from this movie that i really enjoyed uh one it is on our list we've talked about how folks love uh andy circus for his motion capture and voice work um but i'm seeing evidence now that people love andy circus for um the way he can just bite somebody's finger right off just bite a nickel for every time that happened i would have two (laughs) nickels nickels, which which isn't isn't a lot lot. (laughs) but it's weird that it happened twice twice. (laughs) because he bites off yeah it happens in lord of the rings too um yeah, couldn't help but think about that in that scene. I was like, man, they really just love to watch Andy Circus bite somebody's finger off with motion. Totally. Uh, my other favorite part, and the part that made me laugh out loud when I was watching this movie, um, was uh, Tom Felton's character. Yep. Uh, that that one line. It's the weirdest thing. I I never would have expected to hear Tom Felton like. Well, if you didn't eat my cookies, who did, Rodney? That was so funny to me. It was like, it didn't even really belong in the movie. They just loved making him a mean guy. So he's yelling at Rodney for eating his dang cookies. That was so random. Also, like, I mean, let's be real. It's just very entertaining thinking about the fact that, you know, in this movie, we get to see draco malfoy get his butt kicked by Gollum. Mm-hmm. like let's be real for a minute better I yet that. better yet we get to see draco malfoy get his butt kicked by alfred alfred from the batman that's right oh yeah that's right i forgot about that yeah that's even better he's been yeah. in a lot of stuff y'all you know he was one of the villains in black panther yes yeah. he was Oh yeah, yeah. Eustace, Ulysses, Ulysses Claw. Claw. Who's like the main guy in that in Black Panther, main villain? And not the main one. He's also oh, no, in no, thir- no, no. Well, he was one of the. No, main he ones. wasn't the main villain. He's also in Thirteen Going on Thirty and plays a very different role. If you want to see how versatile <laughs> Andy Serkis is, you can check out uh, his character in Thirteen Going on Thirty. So it sounds like the moral of the story is that Andy Serkis needs a freaking Oscar. Thank you. Exactly. Talking about the snake eating its own tail, we are right back to it. Andy Circus <laughs> deserves a freaking Oscar. He, yeah, he, he is good. 
Don't get me wrong. He's good. He's just not Colin Firth, huh, Tristan? Apparently not. Look, and I I'll, don't work at the I don't work at the academy, of, okay? But if I did, snake, I'd probably agree with them. Speaking of the snake eating its own tail, this is literally where we've gotten to. Episode three. Nope. Yep. Nope. Episode eight yep. nope. of some yep. jerks who talk about movies. We talk about Mamma Mia. Four years later, we come right back around to it, and I and I have renounced my incredible man crush for Colin Firth. So I, I was thinking say, about that earlier. Why? And now Why did you say, it? and now say screw Colin Firth. Give <laughs> Andy Circus a freaking Oscar. What did Colin Firth do to you? He won he an Oscar. Oscar. An Oscar. He won an Oscar. He was too good, <laughs> Colin Firth. Too good. I just want Andy Circus to win an Oscar. That's all I want. I don't think I'm asking for too much. Me neither. All I ask is for Colin Firth to go die in a hole. <laughs> Absolutely. He didn't even ask for that. He just did. I don't. I don't actually ask for that. You know what? I renounce uh, my sarcastic asking of Colin Firth to go die in a hole because I do still love Colin Firth. I just want Andy Serkis to win an Oscar. All right. Are so we ready to score, to this score this sucker? Yes, please. <laughs> Why don't you get us started? Okay. Look, Tristan Webb went on my Larabox a few days ago and said that I was way nicer to movies on Larabox than I am on the podcast. And I'm just going to be real with you right now. I'm going to be real with you. I love this movie. I love the entire series of movies. I'm going to give this movie an 87. I think it is a phenomenal film. And when I say it's an 87, I want you to just remember that Into the Spider-Verse, I gave an 89. And that is currently my fifth favorite movie of all time. Um, I love this movie. I love this series. I cannot wait to talk about the other two movies next week. I guess I can go next. Uh, I think this movie works well as its own thing. I think this movie also works well as the beginning of the series. Um, I think it does a good job of setting up an interesting story and I'm very interested to see where it goes. I'm going to give this an 85. Um, I wouldn't say this movie, I'm like dying to see it again, but I'm dying to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. I will absolutely watch this movie again after I see the whole trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I'm not even opposed to watching all the you know, the original five movies. I've seen the the very first one. Um, I'd watch the other ones, even the one that was filmed in a parking lot. Sounds fun. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I'm digging this. I like this Planet of the Apes stuff from what I've seen so far. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give it an 89, though. Almost an A. Ooh. I like this movie. It was good. Yeah, I'm also going to give it an 89. Um, it's a good film. It's honestly a pretty easy watch um and i'm i was hooked on it throughout uh just like i was on phonics when i was a young man um <laughs> which i was a young which there's, a is whole, too. there's also a whole south park episode called hooked on monkey phonics in which cartman learns how to spell via a monkey drumming to him um drumming to him spelling so well well, how about that well folks what goes around comes around as we say on uh setting the scheme snaking Um, its tail again anyway uh so i put all these numbers that we just set into our pounded scorometer also good lord my voice (laughs) oh it is so dead oh it's so dead that's okay doug go rest your voice um, but we got a final score of an 87.5. So Doug was the closest to being right this week. Which uh, rarely happens. I rarely know. happens. But yes, that was Rise of the Point of the Apes. As we alluded to earlier in this episode, next week uh, will be a bit of a double feature. We will be discussing Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes in the same episode. Uh, we've learned in the past that typically when we do trilogies like that, uh, talking about the second and third movies, are typically not to fill out one podcast so we're gonna see how that goes it might end up running a little long but if it does it's okay 
I um I also just want to take this moment. Uh, ben, do you write the description notes for these episodes? Yeah. Okay, Ben, I'm going to send you a link to this. Uh, listeners, if you enjoyed us talking about Planet of the Apes for uh, 50 some odd min- minutes, um, I would highly encourage you to go on to YouTube to Story Street. It's a YouTube channel. Um, and on there, the uh, the owner of that channel has done a three-part analysis on this trilogy. Uh and he goes into incredible depth on each movie. They are phenomenal, phenomenal uh, videos, and I highly recommend them. Uh, ben, I'll send you the links because I would love it if we could uh, plug those. Yeah, then uh, you can definitely find those in the uh, show notes below. Um, but yeah, uh, keep up with all the cool stuff that we're doing on social media at Vider Media. And until next week, I'm Ben. I'm Doug. I'm Tristan. I'm Elijah. This has been Setting Skiing. I hope you all have a great week. Mm-hmm.